This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. Alrighty guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal cast. This is a part one of three. So the overarching theme of the series is basically with things seeming to shift back to local events with no word on larger competitive play, mm -hmm. how to start vending locally at your local game stores, at smaller events, stuff like that. So each episode, we're going to take a look at different aspects of that and how it works when you're first setting up, things we did that were bad, things we did that were good, whatever, just kind of you know learn from our experience. So the first one is basically how backpacking at a small event works compared to a GP, because they are significantly different yes. from one another. Yep. Uh, so backpacking is kind of interesting. You know, everybody knows that one person that just has binders at F&M, and, you know, they're the person you go to when you need whatever odds and ends your LGS doesn't have or other players on the floor don't. Somebody you can expect to have you know, everything. Um, back in the day, that could either be somebody arbitraging for another store or somebody that, you know, just had the cash to float and moved cards across various ecosystems uh, in, the, in the gaming scene. Um, but one of the, the big things that's kind of changed is now uh, everybody kind of expects, or at least for a time expected backpackers to kind of be these pseudo floor vendors. And it it kind of comes at a like I said the cost of expectation and if you're not set up properly you're really not going to make a splash at an event like a magic fest you'll, you'll be fine at an F&M because you'll have that name recognition or in your local area yeah. but there is kind of this expectation put forth and one of the, the biggest and first things you need to do is you know set up your binders ahead of time uh, this was kind of a, a big thing to learn uh, I when I was just traveling to, to GPs and I uh, expected to floor trade, uh, I just left my binders color sorted for the formats that they were represented in. And people were like, oh, okay. there's a bunch of tips and tricks. And like, you want to throw some money cards throughout to keep people kind of viewing your cards. And like, this is all like how to catch fish, you know, and, and keep people interested. But for me, I would rather set things up to be more like a vendor. And you want to like set up your binders for your attendees. So when I went to a limited uh, GP, I knew it was just going to be whatever, like a, a regular vendor. But if I was going to a standard GP, then I would have my standard stuff only. And that's kind of something we harp on all the time is understand your intent, uh, your attendees. And from there, it kind of becomes a, a wash on what you want to do. Do you want to color sort your binders? You know, you want one binder for white, one for blue, one, etc. Do you want to price sort your binder, which is when you'll see at vendor booths when they have all their played cards in binders on the back side of the booth, or it's one just... to five dollars, five to ten, all played. Yeah. Exactly. So you don't have to price every card individually. You just in the middle of the three by three, you have yeah, exactly a sleeve with all a price on this it. page. Yep. To remind people, and it's super easy, super low key. So that's up to you. But those are very good ways to set up your your binders. And one of the weird little things, and this is um, something that can be addressed later, is if you know you're going to be setting up, right? You're going to be setting up at an FNM. You're the person, um, and you just want to have a spread. Do you actually want to like tape your binders together? This is kind of like an insider thing, where if you lay your monster binders or whatever one over another and tape the pages together, it's really hard for somebody to walk away with the binder. Yeah, because they walk away with all your binders, and at that point, you realize very quickly what's going on. 
and, and like these are kind of like low level entry points for really kind of you know looking to be that presence at FNM and smaller local events and those are the first few that came to mind for me when I thought about making this transition because it's not something that is really was really intuitive still isn't really intuitive and really only kind of came to mind after I started vending events and it's it's interesting going from the GP scene to the LGS scene when I first because I, I went the opposite. I didn't go from the LGS to the bigger pond. I went from, you know, taking a bunch of licks on the GP floor to being a shark trader on the GP floor to all of a sudden coming to the LGS. And the binder organization was, for me, the big difference. Because uh, I when I was at GPs, what I did was I had my 10 and less binder. Yep. I had my 10 to 50 binder. And then I had my 50 plus binder. Yep. And I would always say, hey, let me take a look at your stuff. Take a look at their stuff. What do they have that I want? What's the general price range of it? How much of it do they have? Mm -hmm. And then I'd say, why don't you take a look at this binder and let me know if you see anything you like. Yep. And if I pulled out a bunch of duels, obviously I'm giving them the 50 plus binder. Mm -hmm. If I pulled out a bunch of smalls, well, it depends if I'm wanting to go wide at this point or I'm wanting to condense if I gave them the small binder or the 10 to 50. Yep. And I noticed at the LGS that didn't work as well for me. Because a lot of times when you're going to an FNM, pretty much unless there's another floor vendor there, they're not going to have their 50 plus binder. They'll just have one or two binders with stuff randomly yep. thrown in that may or may not actually be like worth more than $50. Or it's in their EDH deck yep. or it's in their modern deck or whatever. And I think that was one of the things as far as shifting ecosystems that was difficult for me to learn was, you know, it's a lot more important to cater to your audience at the LGS than it is at a big event because yes. you're, you know, you have 3,000 attendees at a Grand Prix. Great. Even if only 2,000 of them are for the main event, well, that's still two-thirds of them. When you go to your local FNM and you've got 20 people there, mm -hmm. well, there's that format, but you also need to know that shop's ecosystem. Yes. Yeah. Is that the EH store? Is that the modern store? We have a pauper store in St. Louis where like popper foils are basically worth twice their weight in gold because people just want to pick them up and it's so much more important to understand that ecosystem at the local level mm -hmm. where like your binder organization matters a lot more knowing your audience matters a lot more and you know we've touched on how at a grand prix it does matter but at the lgs it can literally make or break your night oh, you absolutely. can sit there for six hours at the modern fnm doing nothing yep i I want to echo all of that because that's exactly what happened to me when I stopped playing and traveling for the GP circuit because I moved to a location where I can only puddle jump uh, as flights or drive to Boston was the nearest GP and they stopped getting them every quarter. I had to rearrange uh, my binders because I did the exact same thing. I had those price point binders because I was going to GPs like once or twice a month because they're eminently drivable from where I lived. And that's how I came to actually resort my collection was I had a standard binder, I had a modern binder, yep. and then I had like a legacy and vintage uh, staples binder below a certain price point because I'm not taking yeah. duels out unless I thought yeah. it was necessary. And that did not work at FNM. And what has served me better is exactly what you described. I set up uh, an EDH binder with all like, yep. you know, EDH overflow and a standard binder because that covered the majority of shops in my area. And then I have like a low-level modern binder for the modern store I play at. And that has done wonders for uh, the local events. And it's similar for when I stock my pre-releases. For the cards that I stock 
uh, personally, I generally like to do uh, EDH overflow in the cases, and then the binders that I put out are exactly that, the EDH overflow with a little bit of standard and a little bit of modern because that's those are my uh, attendees. But one of the other things to do at these events, because you're going to be, you know, backpacking, you're going to need space, is you do need to check with your TOs and judges to see if there's an area that you can use. They are going to understand the size of the events, how many people they expect per event, how many events they're going to fire on a given weekend for a pre-release, and generally speaking, how spread out the FNMs are going to be, and working with them uh, to set up shop at the appropriate tables. and then present like a vendor would is also extremely useful. Being uh, asked to move constantly and shoot kind of, it's... Sh- yeah, it it shrinks the uh, the visibility of what you're trying to do. Unless you're you know playing in the event and then also trading as well. And and that's super important is making sure that you can be established throughout the entirety of the event and hopefully get that same spot week after week so people know when they walk into the room where you're going to be or who to look out for. And I think it's important when you mentioned, and this clicked when you said at the pre-releases you vent, there is a point where you want to approach whatever LGS, whatever TO about, hey, you know, or there may be a point where like, hey, I want to have a more permanent space when I'm here. Mm -hmm. What can I do to get a table? What can I do to set up a booth? You know, is there, you know, because a lot of LGSs now don't necessarily want to sit on a bunch of legacy stuff. Hey, you know, you've got this event coming up or a bunch of modern stuff or whatever. I've got a bunch of this inventory. Can I give you, like, how can we work it out so that I can vend here? And this is where the relationships are super important. And, you know, there's every city has the guy that burned every single LGS because they stole from them. They ripped off the owner. They were mean to kids, whatever. Don't be that guy. Be nice. Have a good relationship because. I think we're getting back to the point and we'll get back to the point where you have that very beneficial both flowways mm-hmm. relationships with your LGS where if you're the one that's going to the big events you can feed your LGS cards they need they can feed you cards they don't want mm-hmm. and being able to set up a table at those events like you do at pre-releases like I have a case at a store here in town like hey we're helping each other out because we're using our brand to tie into the LGS's brand, and that's beneficial for both people, and it also helps them be a little bit stronger where they're weak. When you first approached, were you just like straight up, hey, you know, can I vend your pre-release, or how'd you do that? Um, Yeah, pretty much. So my LGS basically decided to divest from singles because it was worth more to them to have their employees specialize in tabletop gaming than it was to specialize in magic singles and consistently reprice to attempt to churn stock at such a low rate that they just pulled the ripcord forever ago. And that kind of opened up the spot at uh, F&M to become that kind of vendor ahead of time. And then eventually broaching the conversation of like, hey, I travel a lot, I'm moving cards around, I'm a face in the community, what can we do for the pre-releases to try and bring more people in? Does it make sense to once a quarter set up a vendor booth and make that a selling point for the events? Where there'll be a vendor presence there, people can come and sell all the cards they've been sitting on 
for this amount of time and rebuy in because we're still not an affluent area. So yeah. the ability to sell out <clears throat> what they've been accruing and buy into these events is incredibly po uh, positive for both them and the LGS. And it still moves cards through the ecosystem as necessary. So once that was kind of determined, we eventually fired on it and um, my, you know, quote unquote brand is now basically pre-release and high end. I no longer do FNM. There's another vendor that does FNM and it's an incredible symbiotic relationship for all three of us. And I think that's one of the important things is when you're starting out, because I basically, you know, their single selection ebbed and flowed with the college population yes. in the area. So during the summer, they had nothing for the first few months of the semester. They probably had nothing. And towards the end of the semester, they were flush with stuff that they couldn't do anything with. And then it just sat there and they yep. started listing wherever. And it's kind of, you know, I'd been there, I, you know, playing a presence there for a while. And basically same thing, like, hey, I travel to these events. You know, is there a way that we can work out something that's symbiotic and mutually beneficial for us to just kind of help each other out? Yep. And, you know, if it's me putting my cards in your case and you taking a percentage and you know what? I'll handle the pricing. I'll do all that for you. It means I don't have to sell them. They just sit there and they move or they don't. Yep. Yep. And, you know, that's that's important, I think, as we transition to this more localized economy for the time being. Yeah. Because most of the people I've talked to have said at least 22 for big events. And that means we've got about seven, six, seven more months here of we're going to have to make this work with our local guys. And I think that's important because that persists when big events don't yeah um and i think the other thing is like extras that you want to have how how do you want to set your local brand aside from other potential backpackers mm -hmm. in the area yeah uh i'm really big on supplies it's stupid it's dumb because you can go to an lgs and get them but i'll usually keep a couple things of dragon shields yeah in my backpack and they're like man i need some supplies i'm like hey i'll trade like i'll put it at ten dollar trade value and you can just trade me cards for it and that is i will say something that you have to work out with a store beforehand yeah yeah uh are you okay with me trading stuff like this inside your store because it's a really good way to get banned so don't just do it this is not a better to ask forgiveness than permission type of deal ask permission up front please yeah yeah uh i think that's what my LGS probably is probably moves the most of because most magic size sleeves fit a number of board games and and uh, tabletops. So my LGS moves a ton of them, and it was never really a question for me because after sorry before you could sell boxes on pre-release weekend, my LGS was just flush with supplies and would sell infinite of them. Yeah. So that was a no-brainer. I don't bring supplies to pre-releases now that they can sell uh, boxes same thing and so i don't care about sealed at all i don't want to buy sealed from people uh, if they win it from whatever and i don't want to resell it because my lgs is there representing that and they can deal with the lgs because that's what my lgs does now and there's no reason for me to try and step in on that um, one of the other things that was pretty big about this is uh, i was already moving cards for some of the management at my lgs they didn't have an okay. online presence. The owner doesn't want that. So I was moving uh, cards for them on eBay, TCG Player, and Facebook. So 
it, it, that relationship had already begun but i was already able to ensure that uh, if i was there mainly to to buy cards for resale i was going to cover my table fees because i still pay a fee for the table that was also part of it it's nominal and it essentially just pays the room fee uh, but I'm able to cover my costs because I understand my audience and I have the bandwidth to then take what I've bought and either churn it back into a vendor buy list or list it on TCG Player, um, etc. And you know that that goes with uh, the focus of what I'm doing at the pre-release or if I'm at FNM, just kind of grinding cards before every pre-release. I actually make a list of cards that I'm looking for because I think they're going to change standard or modern in some fundamental way that I want to focus on them. And like, there's a lot of prep that that goes into uh, this transition beyond beyond just the relationship at the LGS level or with the TO that runs um, these events and like. That's something that can't be understated. Also, and this is a weird one because not a lot of people think about it. Are you going to put cases out on these tables or are you just going to go with binders? Because if you go with cases, you need to source them and you need to uh, figure out how many cards go in each and what the timeline is to receive them. Um, I use kind of like the standard quote unquote quotes around the word standard acrylic cases that you see a lot of the Canadian vendors using uh, Joe Dan Wu yep. on Facebook Joe Dan Wu from Magic Stronghold this is one of the most important things we'll ever tell you he's the guy that makes them get them yep. they're great yep, Sorry. The, no no that's fine uh, he's the contact for the, the standard acrylic cases that you'll see most Canadian vendors using and a few inside the US because they fit inside your standard uh, checked luggage bag yeah it, it's fantastic and it doesn't matter if you stack or if you place your cards in there in the uh, U.S. way, which means uh, left to right overlap, or the APAC way, which is uh, top to bottom, left to right. Yep, uh, it all fit. Not infinite cards, and, and they're super duper easy, but they do take a while to get. And like I said, this isn't one of those points that you really think of until it's like last minute, and you're like, ah, shit, how am I going to do this? You know, yep. binders are fine, absolutely, especially for a pre-release or an F and M, right? You don't have to think that big. I have the cases because when I go to Anime Boston, they're here. I just bring them with me down to the show. We don't have to fly them in. That saves us some overhead on, on price, right? So my cases. And then the last point uh, is, you know, types of events. You don't have to be there for every FNM. You don't have to be there for every pre-releases. If we get an organized play announcement where they're like, hey, we're bringing back fucking PTQs and GPTs, man, you can vend those too. People need cards all the time. And those are good events to hold, especially go back to the original PTQ style where it's an all-day event. Your, uh, your TO, uh, your store could decide to fire a bunch of events all weekend long, and you know what, or, or all day long. If you're there, that allows you to just vacuum up cards all day. Yep. So you need to figure out where you want to put your money in regards to these events, understand then the attendees, and really kind of make, that, uh, make inroads and build your brand that way. And I think that's, you know, those points that you may not think of till it's time, and prime example, so it was two weeks before our first Grand Prix, at Moonbase, and we were like, oh shit, we forgot cases. We contacted Joe Dan Wu, had him send them with one of his buddies who was traveling from Canada yep. to give them to us at the event. And if they had not been there, we would not have an event. And those things, that's one of the reasons we want to do this series, is stuff like that. And it is important not just to make your inroads with the players, but with the LGS and TO as well, so that if you need to be bailed out, you can. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing that, you know, people talk about the bad experiences with vendors way more than the good. 
So having these positive relationships where someone can cover, can help you out are super important for this mm -hmm. because this is basically like roadmap to being a Grand Prix vendor with a booth. You start local, you go to your pre-releases or whatever and get your table and go from there. Mm -hmm. And I think that especially at these all-day events, like you said, hoovering up as many cards as possible is one of the most important things because for me, and I'm sure it's the same for you. I tend to remember as a player the vendors who pay me more money. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I I'm just gonna go where the money is. I'll shop it around and like, yeah, man, I'm petty. You'll lose my business over a dollar. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, you, you start I, to yeah, you build that knowledge base of like, okay, this person primarily focuses on is pro focuses in EDH, this vendor does these formats, these vendors do these formats, and so you can build that like you save your you save your mental energy because yeah. you know when you're you know i'm going to use the term ogre boxing here when you're ogre boxing your cards based on format and you're like all right these cards are going to go to this vendor this vendor this yep. vendor. you don't have to sit down then with uh you know friday afternoon or whatever after getting all the buy lists on site and then you know scrimping for you know the quarters or, or dollars or whatever you just know like i'll get the best money here 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 and, and for x y and z and it's super duper important and it's again it's all about that brand it's all about building that brand and then and that expectation and if you want to be you know a potpourri vendor and you know just have everything all the time by by all means you know don't feel like you can it takes you know more time usually more people more energy to do but it, it's definitely a, a method because that gets you're going to catch more fish by casting that wider net absolutely it's For just sure. more work on your end personally than maintaining that like niche buyer Here's my niche. Yeah, yeah that niche buyer profile that we talked about a number of episodes ago you know um, and, and then like there there's a lot of uh overtones for becoming or you know backpacking to vending and some of the odds and ends that don't really fit into these larger things there's like and i mentioned sourcing information about your attendees you know are your attendees yeah. to pre-releases or fnms competitive or casual like that's going to determine how you're going to stock your binder or your cases. Um, a, a good example was from my LGS back in Magic Origins Standard. They couldn't buy or keep Fetchlands or Jacevin Prodigy in stock because all the competitive players in the area were coming in to scoop them up. But the LGS yep. itself was casual, and that's nothing against the LGS it just meant that for me I wasn't going to stock those cards because I wasn't going to move them to my attend my FNM attendees I was yeah. going to move like the red green devotion stuff or like yep. the mono uh, the mono red uh, dash deck kind of stuff to my attendees I didn't have the reach that my LGS did you know what formats do those attendees play outside of the events you're in that will tell you okay if i'm vending a standard fnm but they also play modern if i bring modern staples with me that increases my sales velocity because now there are going to be more looks at more cards same thing with edh etc my attendees primarily uh edh so i always have you know that thing on me um how much is your average attendee, you know, quote unquote worth? And this is very difficult to figure out at a low level. This generally yeah. only happens once you start actually gathering sales data. And this is very much like an online vendor kind of thing because you're able to create that profile and expose people to uh, appropriately priced cars and sales, et cetera. 
but that gives you the idea at the lower levels of should you bring anything high end is it just going to be in the case so it's a, a talking point and if it is sure but understand that you don't yeah. need to fill an entire case with you know duels if that if that's not what your attendees are really quote unquote worth you know we mentioned at the top of the show price pointing our binders for gp attendees because those people are generally much more affluent than the locals so how do you tailor your binders right now standards not right now for the last bunch of years standards been pretty easy because it's either playable or garbage so yeah, you just agree. yeah. So you just fill your standard binder with the playables, and it's easy to move. You don't have to worry about oh, Snapcasters in standard. My attendees don't have the forty plus bucks to pick up my snappies, so I'll leave them at home kind of thing. It's yeah. like whatever. You just throw it all in a binder, and it'll move because nothing is raucously expensive aside from I think Vorinclex, and even then, EDH players might just trade the farm for it, yeah. and it, you don't have to worry about too much overall past that. And so it's an interesting kind of thing to keep in mind. Um, also, the I think the last big point we wanted to hit is like, all right, if you're still backpacking, right, you're not vending, you know, how do floor trades happen? What's the expectation for this? And this is a big one with a lot of stores. It centers around cash. If cash is used to even out the transaction, how is that done? Yep. One of the stores here has openly said we don't care if you use cash to finish it as long as you go outside yep if you stay inside that's a problem but you can literally step outside the door i can watch you hand cash to them outside of the building and i'm fine with it Mm -hmm. and then there's another store that says you can do it in store but it's going to be 10 percent. like we want 10 percent of whatever cash value in the trade and i think that This is another one of those situations where it's important to ask permission rather than forgiveness because you will get banned. Make sure you know ahead of time, like, hey, look, I'm like five bucks off. If I hand someone a five spot, do you mind? Mm -hmm. Can we transfer store credit? Like, how do we want to work this so that we can do it? And the other one is just as easy as set the expectation when you start. Hey, with the person you're trading with, I use this price metric. Is that okay? Yeah. Please. It solves so many problems. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I've never understood is I'll be like, all right, so I'm going to use TCG Familiar, the app, and use the trade option. They're like, I go by Star City. Okay, but if we're using the same metric, it doesn't matter. Yes, yeah. So don't, don't, it goes both ways. Don't brick a trade over disagreeing on which pricing metric to use. Just try to work it out. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And those those are the big things to me. And then the space, obviously, which yep. we already touched on. Yep. Um, for one of the things that um, I did for a while uh, in between when my LGS stopped selling singles and when uh, they picked up a vendor for FNM was um, if anybody contacted me about trades, uh, trades, put it that word in quote, uh, ahead of time and the agreement was basically the only time allotted was prior to FNM, we would meet in the store, set the expectation of what was going to be transacted upon. And then um, if it was cash, I basically had an okay from where I was working to say, it can you can set it up inside, but the deal is outside. So basically everything would be done uh, externally. I don't, uh, out of just uh, appreciation and respect to the, L- to the LGS, I never squared up uh, inside at any point. I think at one point in time for one of the LGSs I was working in, they basically said, if it's not in the case, we don't care. 
Yeah, and that's another big one. Yeah, that was a fine metric to work on because that basically just means you're not buying under LGS prices and kind of like skimming, quote unquote, off the top from them yeah. because they're not making your money. You're making you know, buying from somebody else. But, you know, floor trades, covert, overt, it really comes down to the expectation set by the entity you're working with or uh, within how you feel about it and how things are done. I've done tr uh, cash transactions um, on the weekends and if possible, I like to do it, or I, I liked to do it inside the LGS because it was a friendly atmosphere. It was con uh, conducive to both people. It was secure for both. And then at the end, we just decided how we were going to square uh, score up and take care of it that way. So I've used my LGS essentially as a base of operations for stuff like that. And that kind of falls into the same thing as like if you're buying publicly from Craigslist, Facebook, etc., and you want to feel you know most comfortable. A lot of people like to do things like that in public places, and you know it's a play like I said, a place of familiarity, so it helps reduce that you know initial barrier. Uh, other than that, I mean, there's there's obviously a lot more that goes into it based on who you are, what you're doing, what your goals are, because some of this is going to shift. But those are basically our, our top level points for the initial step of transitioning from. Uh, backpacking to vending. So. It's important to get started. And oh. that's what we did today. Yep, uh, absolutely. Uh, then I think one of the questions I have, and this is relevant to the cast and then moving forward because we don't know what organized play is going to look like, is, you know, we've mentioned the pit and yeah. you know, trading at GPs, you know, actually floor trading, no quotes around the word trading. What's going to happen there? And that's going to be interesting to see because we won't know right away. You know, eventually... Uh, once CFB took over the TO role for all of the events, they essentially, you know, pushed the pit out of the hall because they yeah. didn't want anybody like sharking stuff. And you know that's absolutely fine, but that does kind of kill a little bit of the ecosystem and the uh, ability to move cards around and the ability to vend as such. You know, somebody locally. So we'll definitely touch on that. Uh, rip mom's basement, but I know. You good for picks otherwise? Yes. All right, cool. You can go first because I went first last week. Great. So you get a two for this week, and this is courtesy of Modern Horizons 2 spoilers. All right, we got Grimflare, and we got Vengevine. Why those two cards? Look, we have a lot of super efficient, low-to-the-ground delirium threats in Jun colors on top of Ignoble Hierarch which I swear was just the meme of like the three people in the boardroom and they throw the guy out the window yep, at the yeah. end. Someone just came up with ignoble hierarch in that meme. Anyways, uh, I think we're about a card away from a very efficient low to the ground Jund aggro deck. Similarly, with red basking Rootwalla, I think we're maybe half a card away from a really efficient Vengevine focused tempo aggro madness deck. We already had hollow one. Mm -hmm. that exists this immediately makes another big possibility for a hollow one uh, having another free creature that you can dump out and pump as a mana sink is great it's also another enabler for Vengevine both of these cards I think will get back to where they were let's see at Pro Tour Vengevine when it was about 20 to 30 bucks and I think we'll realistically see Grim Flare hit about that 10 to $15 mark again. When? I don't know. That's part of the problem. So I'm not saying go super deep on this one, but based on the way that Wizards has been designing sets lately, with a little bit of trickle-down 
every single time to like, all right, well, this interacts with this card from four sets ago and makes it a little bit better. Yep. This interacts with a card from two sets ago and makes it a little bit better. Eventually, and I expect with Delirium, it'll be sooner than later since we are going back to Innistrad. Uh, we will see some very efficient hyper low to the ground deck. And who knows, it may be sooner. Now that we have paper magic back with these sets that haven't seen the light of day in paper, maybe we get some weird, crazy homebrews that start showing up at states if we get states back. Yep. Either way, I think we're in a really ripe time for experimentation, mm -hmm. which means it is a ripe time for cards that are like undervalued based on where they were historically. Yep. And I think that Grimflayer and Vengevine both fit that mold very, very well. I wouldn't sit on more than about three to four play sets of each at this point, just because timeline-wise, I'm not super comfortable knowing where it's going to end up. I mean, yeah. sure, Flayer, you're looking at like, what, four bucks a piece, five bucks a piece. Okay. Vengevine, uh, I think last I checked, we so were like, sitting at around like nine, ten, right? Uh, yeah. Let me check TCP 10. Player real quick. I'll pull it up. Yeah. Uh, which the WMCQ is now down to like 15 bucks. At any rate, these are the opportunities that are there when sets like MH2 happen. When they kind of go against the grain on traditional set design and try to just make a master set. Yep. I try to look for the cards that now are one card away that could see it. And then I'll throw them in a box with, at this point, 650 Sarkins on ceilings and forget about them for a while. Yeah. Uh, yeah, watching spoilers come out, um, I and I saw Wonder. Uh, I picked up the rest of my FNM copies of that because I'm yeah. a huge homer for uh, Wild, Mongrel, and, and Crew. If uh, you saw some of my tweets over the past couple of weeks. And if you're in the podcast discord you've seen me just like beaming about these cards but my expectation was that we would be looking at jund teamer or four color madness as a non-tournament viable deck because everything just seemed too slow so i was never bullish on any of the parts aside from fnm foil or set foil wonders i think those are just good looks because Wonder does some really funny things for decks like Infect, you know? Um, it does. It's yeah. true. I, I think that card is just, like, applicable across the format. And But I didn't think about Vengevine and Hollow One when it came to uh, the Madness deck because I'm used to that Tempo Madness deck from Standard and Extended of uh, years ago. And I'm still rather bearish on a lot of these pieces. So I do like that you bring up the fact that we really don't know because this set kind of feels like an incomplete view of what modern's meant to be yeah. somebody did suggest that at this point watsi might as well just make odyssey and onslaught blocks legal in modern but at the same time i don't know if that changes the context of modern if that doesn't happen then something like vengevine and uh, hollow one are weak looks because the modern format is just too fast for a yeah. deck that is as value centric as madness that doesn't mean that Grim Flare is a bad look, though. I like Grim Flare more than I like Vengevine, especially with the release of that Rakdos creature today, uh, the 3-3 three, three for 2 with Echo discard a card. That, that helps, thing is so good. Yeah, it it speaks to the low-to-the-ground Jund deck. It helps fuel Delirium, 
and it kind of plays with a lot of re the rest of what's going on. So it's difficult for me to want to get behind some of these really explosive picks like Vengevine and Hollow One, and uh, more behind something like Grimflare, which has more opportunity to shine, especially if the format starts to go long, because Grimflare does go in the Jun deck, which the regular Jun deck, which just got an incredibly large amount of support, and the Abzan deck, which just got Vindicate, among other things. So if Watsi speeds up the format, things get interesting. If they slow down the format, then things like Grimflare shine. Grimflare also has the side effect of being legal in Pioneer, I believe. So at any point in time, it can pop there. Same thing with Hollow One. That's also legal. Yeah. Vengevine, not so much. So there's a lot of weird and interesting overlap that we're going to see between some of these cards that live in Modern and some that live in formats like Pioneer, especially if Watsi starts curating and supporting that format. So all that said, I like Grimflare more than Vengevine, but for similar reasons that you like Grimflare. Just the possibility of a low to gr a low to the ground deck that just operates well, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I, I also agree with the summation on the, the number of copies one wants to hold. Uh, I don't think this is a card you will ever get caught having too many of because this is printed in the modern era. Uh, yeah. If we do get Delirium back in another standard set and Grimflare does come back, if it's doing literal nothing, I think that's how you get hoisted. But the moment it does something, it's going to hold and maintain value, especially if the delirium keyword actually becomes useful in a lot of these older formats, which, like you, as you suggested, is close, yeah. but not quite there. One of my problems with the Madness deck, one of the reasons I was, I'm bearish on it, is because we have News Constrictor as our Wild Mongrel, one of two necessary unrestricted Madness outlets, meaning you don't need to tap it. And the yeah. only other one that I could find besides the new Aquamobia that costs four is an enchantment. And I think there might be one other card in Modern Horizons and they just don't provide enough value yet. No. And something like that is incredibly powerful at powering Delirium, but you know, to your ethos of picking cards that are just one away from good, we're just that much closer to something like this. And these manual and uh, nigh infinite discard outlet, uh, ability to discard outlets like News Constrictor, where it's unabated by uh, a mana cost or a, a, an activated cost tap like a tap. Uh, the more we get of those, the better Delirium gets overall free uh, Faithless Looting from the ban list. And, you know, that helps push. So, again, I like I like Grimflare. I, I I'm not I'm a little sour on Vengevine, but it's because I just don't know what the vision of modern is going to be coming yeah. out of this. Um, but it is good to note as a kind of side effect to what's going on. Keep an eye on it. Keep an eye out on spoilers because apparently we're in the 24-hour news cycle, seven days a week. Spoilers just coming at you hard and fast. Charlotte's Agent came out yesterday. I was super surprised. I was playing EDS when that got announced. I mean, yeah. Those were the days. Which I, uh, I was going to say, we've talked about them just trying to open up modern, and I really hope that's what happens. Like, they, they free some things and just lean into a turn three format, you know. Unban the political prisoners, splinters, splinter, splinter twin. twin. Yes. Do what you cowards. Give me back pod and twin, and I'll enjoy my format. Okay, so my pick is uh, still commander-based, still creature-based, and we're going with Bonders Enclave today. So uh, Bonders Enclave, uh, 
you know, uh, land from Akoria, so it has infinite versions in regards to foiling and uh, extended arts. I'm going with the regular set version because it's always held uh, a nice buy price on Card Kingdom compared to market price. Um, and it's a really great effect for Commander. It's just three, tap, draw a card, activate this ability only if you control a creature with power four or greater, which is basically Commander of the format. It's like, all right, cool, real awesome. So, uh, the overwhelming majority of generals that people play are going to have power greater than or equal to four, and if they don't, you're probably going to be suiting them up, so it's an easy, guaranteed, unilateral draw compared to other options like Temple Bell and Mikokoro Center of the Sea. And I'm not looking at things like Howling Mine, I'm looking specifically at lands for this comparison. Um, and I do understand that not every commander will reach four plus power, but it's really hard to imagine every deck not having a four plus power creature within. You know, this should yeah. be a, a pretty easy card to utilize so uh, as far as format information goes you take a look at edh recommend and this thing is just all over the place and kind of rightfully so because it's just so easy to to enable it goes in everything it's not color restricted it's it's purely colorless all it really cares about is the power of the creatures on the board be they your general or the creatures within aggressive controlling it doesn't matter so Unless your theme is to maintain a board state with creatures that do not meet the requirements of this card, the benefits of cheap, reliable draw far outweigh the three mana and creature power requirement attached to it. And being unbound to colors, uh, unlike Sylvan Library and Phyrexian Arena, this card really should be seeing much more play, and I would expect it to be in similar numbers or a percentage to War Room. You know, War Room okay. always draws. It costs three, you lose life equal to the number of colors in your commander, uh, into in your color sorry your commander's color identity and you draw a card so it's guaranteed draw whether or not your commander's in the command zone or it's on board and i understand the difference between that but it shouldn't be seeing like 20 percent more play uh when looking at uh the number of decks they're in and a three percent increase in total number of decks so like i would expect them to be a lot closer and i just think that people are being um a little too leery and they're being a little too cautious about this card uh, in comparison to War Room. Uh, so a timeline for this thing is after the immediate arbitrage that is available on TCG Player to Card Kingdom based on the slope that we see on stocks zoomed in from uh, like Cal Time forward this is really going to be in the 9 to 12 month uh, arena for uh, profit to buy a list. If this were to hit in any kind of commander content, we should see the shift even faster and possibly be a three to six month turnaround. Card Kingdom's buy list quantity continues to float upward. Currently, it's up 14% from last week, but the price has maintained almost the entire way through. So I added this to my watch list in, mid, in the middle of February, and they were buying 94 at $1.35. They're, they were buying 140 at $1.30 on Friday, and today they're buying 166 at $1.30. So the quantity keeps floating, but the price doesn't. And if it hits or they can't receive the quantity they're looking for at what seems to be a seemingly stable price this is will finally jump but it'll never come back especially as the open market price is about to cross the threshold of the vendor price and that's something that's actually new that's something that i that i found today and if i bring up the stocks graph you can see that the market price has been kind of sawtoothing all over the place but always coming back down to the average which is basically represented the vendor price but now with this recent spike in uh average compared sorry in market compared to average being so much higher than the card kingdom buy list i don't expect this card to be as cheap as it is to 
uh, sorry, as cheap as it is on the Card Kingdom BIOS right now. Like, so once the open market uh, inverts, the price inverts compared to vendor prices, that's it. Th this card just doesn't come back. So getting in now for a couple weeks or a couple months down the line when that inflection finally happens and prices really start moving is where you want to be. I also see this as a solid hold just forever to out to EDH players. I don't think I'd go on infinite, but I'd probably stay somewhere in the neighborhood of 16 to 20 and feel really happy about it because this goes in every EDH deck. It's just a colorless land. Again, it's unbound. And the more colors you play in your commander, the less savory War Room becomes. Using yeah. War Room and losing two to four to five life every turn is like fairly detrimental when you can just be playing creatures. Yeah, I I like this. I think it's it touches on something that I think happens a lot with your picks. Is it's right at the critical point where market and average are hitting for a spike to happen, and historically we've seen it when you've noticed it. So I think it's great. I also think that reprint wise, when are we going to see it? Yeah, it's it'll it, it'll be a little bit. Uh, agreed. I, I don't think we're we're going to see a reprint anytime soon. If it comes out, it'll be in a commander deck, so it's going to be kind of limited. I wouldn't expect it to be anywhere else. Um, the the only thing that kind of is curious to me is what happens to all these other versions. So we have like set foil, promo foil, uh, full art foil, right? So four foils, promo set. Full yeah, because there wasn't etched then. Okay, pre-release promo. Sorry, two promos. Oh yeah. There's promo pack, pre-release promo, set foil, and uh, extended art. And for the entire time I've been uh, watching Bonders Enclave, um, it's been the set version that kind of trucks along and holds uh, the best uh, across the bunch. But this is another one of those times where, right, the set version is poised to go. You might also be well served watching some of the foils on top of this and keep and keep that in mind that's true i i think it's it's interesting because it comes from an era where we have like what was the fate reforged dragon land that hit like 15 bucks after a few years is it spirit haven yeah spirit haven right uh every few years it seems like in a creature heavy set there's some utility land that just randomly hits 10 to $15. And obviously I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon since we're sitting at like $2. Yep. But uh, I think, you know, if you want to go even longer on timeline, I would hold this for yep. maybe three to four years and see where I end up. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, to go back to the, to touch on foils, there are light play and near mint foils sprinkled in the light play and near mint non-foil pricing for the set version. So it's very interesting to watch and see what's going on. And this is, is this the first set uh, with Akoria? Where they did, no, it was Theros, where they did all the extended art crap. Right? Yeah, so Theros. This is like third in line of that kind of experiment to see what version is the best one to pick up, why and how. And, you know, if, if you want to move in on foils, you know, track them for a couple days, track them for a couple weeks and see where the prices end up because the, the good, the better look could honestly be on set foils. I'm not much of a foil person overall, so I don't really uh, track the prices uh, day by day, but CK is not paying a lot on them. 
which and they're not picking up a lot of quantity and they've never been which kind of tells me that nobody else out there is really buying these yet but at the same time if that's just being masked and they all disappear what happens to the price don't know but um, this is just a card uh, i believe in you know start to finish um this like some of the odd uh, other odd lands i think karn's bastion was a pick like yeah all this stuff i think it's great yeah and i i think it it is one of those where i think that is what's going to happen is all of a sudden they will just disappear and then the price ends up at what it is like spirit haven like or not haven of the spirit yeah, dragon I haven think of is, the spirit dragon yeah, yeah. Uh, where just one day you wake up and you see it on the front page of stocks and you're like, wait, what? Yeah. And then the price sticks because it's something that has really good utility, is color agnostic, and does a thing that fits in with multiple colors in EDH that people want. Yep. Like, what's the big complaint? White doesn't have card draw. It's got to use Endless Atlas and it's got to use Bonders Enclave. Yep. Any color can draw with this, and I think that's important. Yep, so exactly. I, I, I like it. Thank you. Yep. Um, so I think that's going to be it for this week, and next week we'll be back with installment two of making the transition from uh, backpacking to vending. But until then, we are at MTG Cabalcast on Twitter, Facebook, Patreon, and YouTube. You can catch the podcast on Stitcher, Spotify, Audible, uh, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you want to reach out to us directly, you can either reach out to us, uh, to the podcast on Twitter, or you can hit me at Halt, I am Reptar on Twitter. You are at Thirsty Sizzler. We'll see you next week.